Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 8. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Amen. Amen. Uh, And just one more thing before we get going. Uh, We are extending... This short series called Great Faith to the rest of the month of January. And some of you may like that. Some of you may not. But either way, it's happening. So it's kind of like what we tell our kids about dinner. You get what you get. But anyway, here's why I'm so excited about doing this. I'm excited to do this, not only to participate in something larger than ourselves, as you've heard, our our global spiritual family is doing this series and fast this month, January, called Great Faith. Churches in 60 other nations doing this. But I'm also excited to do this to sort of regain some ground in your life, and I think in the life of the church of Jesus in general, if I could go that far. Because if you're like me, if you're like many Christians, this whole idea of faith is a tricky thing. The idea of faith is a tough thing. And again, if you're like me and you've moved through different churches, you've had different church experiences, the whole conversation around faith has been like a mixed bag uh, at best, and maybe even for some of you, a reason to walk away from God and church at worst. And some of you, and this has also been me, you've listened to like a thousand sermons on faith. And you've, you've listened to a who's who of speakers and teachers and preachers and pastors who've talked a lot about faith. But after a while, it began to seem maybe for you that, that the idea of faith had less in common with God's dream for you and maybe more in common with the American dream. And faith for more stuff, and especially if you're not a Christian and you've seen people on TV and TV programs talk about faith, and somehow it always came back to money. Maybe at some point you raised your hand and you asked yourself, well, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? For some of you, this has also been me. The word faith, the idea of faith has been used to hammer you more than it's been used to help you. Uh, You felt more guilty than good, more hurtful than hopeful because the whole idea of faith (laughs) seemed more like a a push-up contest than anything else like who's got more, who's got the most, whose faith is bigger. And at some point, some of you looked up probably, and you asked, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? And for some of you, faith or lack of it, or more specifically, your lack of it, has been used to justify why bad things perhaps have happened to you. Or why that person got sick. Or why that person didn't get healed. Or why that person maybe even passed away. And at some point you looked up at that person or that group or what you believed or what you have been taught and taught to believe. And you maybe even wondered, well, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? 
And so if you've ever wondered, well, what in the world does this whole topic, this whole area of great faith have to do with Jesus? Here is your answer, and here is where I am this, where I am sorry, not sorry today. Sorry, not sorry. Yeah. I am sorry that something has forced you to ask that question about faith. But I'm not sorry at all to talk about this, and here's why. It's because great faith has everything to do with Jesus. And here's what it has to do with Jesus. The only times that the, that the New Testament writers, those who wrote the Gospels, those who were either eyewitnesses of Jesus or who interviewed the eyewitnesses of Jesus, the only time that the Gospel writers record that Jesus was ever amazed at a human being, the Greek word is thumazo, the only time he was ever stunned by a person or marveled at a person was always in direct connection with a person's great faith or lack of it. In other words, your faith, having great faith, I hope you'll see, matters to Jesus. And so if you're not a Christian and you're not a church person and somebody just drug you in here today, of course, we're so glad you're here. What I think you're about to hear now, though, is especially helpful for you because we're about to look, maybe you noticed in the passage, at an encounter that Jesus had with a non-Christian. A non-church person, non-Jesus person, it's an encounter with someone who has no faith church background. And as we do that, as we look at this encounter, we're going to see today that this whole encounter is all about what great faith is, how great faith is formed, and why having great faith matters. What it is, how it's formed, and why having great faith matters. Let's look at the story. It begins like this. We'll pick it up here uh, in this verse, verse uh, 5 chapter of Matthew chapter 8. It says, when he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. So Jesus is here. Here's the context. He's in this place, this village. Most people believed, and scholars believe he lived in as an adult called Capernaum. It simply means village of Nahum. Nahum was a prophet in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. So Jesus here, here's the picture. He's in his own town, minding his own business with his own disciples when someone comes up to him. And that person that came up to him is not the person. If you were a Jew, you would want coming up to you in that day. That someone was a Roman centurion. And if you were a Jew in that day, the Romans were the bad guys. And the centurions were their street enforcers. Centurions were not officers. Uh, They were just enlisted men who worked their way up into the position of leading 100 soldiers, hence the name centurion, through killing, through brutality, And through sheer combat survival skills, they could handle any crowd, put down any resistance, and were sent as a sign of Roman superiority. So imagine being Jesus when an armed oppressor approaches him and his disciples, backed by the law, backed by the state. Imagine the fear, the shock, maybe even the anger, the surprise. Imagine what the disciples there were most likely thinking. They were probably thinking, not again. Not again. Not another encounter with corrupt law enforcement. Not another security check. Or we got a report of someone who looked like you in the area. Especially in their own hometown. But here it came, except it didn't. It didn't. The centurion, it says, didn't come hounding Jesus. It it didn't say he came threatening Jesus. The centurion, it it came to him, said, it said, appealing to him appealing to Jesus, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. 
And right there, of course, you got to know and imagine what the disciples are thinking. They're thinking, oh, 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 so Mr. Centurion, you know, you know, Johnny Gentile. You've got a you've got a sick servant, do you? Oh, that's so sad. This soldier's got a sick servant, and he's, he's, did I hear you say he's paralyzed? I wonder whatever from, whatever he caught, whatever he got, I hope his whole squad gets it. And as far as we're concerned, he can take it all the way back to Rome and the emperor himself. And you know, Jesus, they probably were thinking, we know you've got this thing for sick people, you've got this compassion for suffering people, but if you, if you heal him, now, now think about it, Jesus, wouldn't you just be reinforcing an unjust social structure? Jesus, you're into the whole justice deal, aren't you? What could be more just, think about it, Jesus, than not helping those who have conquered and oppressed us? And I think here Jesus is reading their thoughts, reading their body language, reading the situation, and going, hmm, what could be more just? What if I healed him? What if I healed him? Verse 7, and he said to him, I will come and heal him. And at this point, of course, you got to know, the disciples are coming out of their skin. They're thinking, oh, not only here we go again. They're thinking, not only here goes our day. They're thinking, here goes our reputation. Because Jesus, you know, we are not allowed to go into the home of a Gentile. And you know, you know Ronnie the Roman, whatever his name is here, he already told us his servant is sick and paralyzed and lying. Did you catch it, Jesus? Because we did. He's at home And the only way you can heal him is by going into his home and breaking our law and customs. Everybody knows they've seen you heal. They've seen you deliver, cast out demons. But it's always our people. Never their people, Jesus. But right here is where the story takes a turn. Look at what the centurion says next. Here's what he says. It's incredible. He's about to show you exactly what great faith is. Verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes to another, come and he comes to my servant, do this. And he does it. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, I've been watching you. We're in your hometown, right? This is my beat. This is where I patrol. I've been watching you. And somehow, Jesus, I've seen and noticed you've got this extraordinary power over the human body. It does what you tell it to do. And I know when I see something like that, when I see power, I know that something's behind it. Because, Jesus, I'm a centurion, and there's something behind me. Jesus, I tell my people to do stuff all the time. You know my soldiers. Yeah, you know them because you see them all the time. I tell them, go to that village, and they go. I tell them, hey, you know what? Go pick up my dry cleaning. They go. Go wash my chariot. They go. Go feed my horses by noon, and they go. Why? Not because I'm anything or anybody, but Jesus, the only reason they do that is because I represent Rome. I represent a larger power, a greater authority, and those men respond to me because they respond to Rome. And so when I look at you, And I see you telling sickness where to go. I see you telling disease where to go. I see you telling demons where to go. Jesus, when I see all of that, I know one thing. I know you represent a greater power. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. 
Now, this translation says such faith. It literally means so much faith, large amount of faith. See, Jesus is saying, and you've got to catch this, to a non-Christian, non-Jewish Roman enforcer who's likely murdered his way to the top. You have more faith than anyone I've ever met. You have more faith. He's saying not only than anyone I've ever met. He's saying you've got more faith than anyone in all of Israel. You've got more faith than all the people who are supposed to have faith, who are supposed to follow me. You've got more faith, he's saying, than anyone who follows the commandments of Moses, goes to temple, makes the right sacrifices. He's saying you've got more faith even than my own disciples. Have you seen them? You know? uh, you've got more faith than my own family. Think his disciples might have been a tad bit offended? He says, That guy, a Roman centurion, has great faith. So, what's great faith then? Well, we see great faith, the centurion shows us, is simply great trust. Great faith is simply great trust in the person, in the power, and the authority of Jesus Christ. Great faith is simply great trust. And here's why I think you can know that Jesus is getting at this because in any great relationship, Carrie hinted at it earlier, that trust is at the center. Trust is what brings and holds people together. When, when she and I, they carry the, the great love of my life, thank you. When we stood under that, that palm tree in Southern California and made our vows under that, that tree there, ridiculous vows, right, to always love. I mean, some of you, you go to weddings. We went to a wedding a while back, and they were making vows like, I promise to never, ever hurt you. We were like, oh, my God. You know, like, <laughs> Please, did, no, did, the, did the preacher not edit that? You know, like, I mean. But you get married, for those of you, you've been married, and you make these, like, ridiculous vows. Do you know that's going to happen? No, we had no idea. If we're going to make it together to the end. But what, what's kept us together? It's trust. And because we had trust, we were able to make that vow and move forward in life together. And, of course, it goes on for those of you who are parents with, with children and teenagers. What, what means the most to you? Well, what means the most to you is when they have a choice to go one way or the other. When they've got a choice to go down, your child does, whatever age. A path perhaps you don't think is best for them, you know is not best for them. And when faced with that choice, they look at you and they say, I trust you, Mom. I trust you, Dad. I put my faith in who you are to me. Great faith is great trust in who someone is. It's so simple. It's so powerful. And here's the word. It's so true. Great faith is just great trust. And listen, you know, you demonstrate faith in stuff all the time, especially for those of you today here, you're a little more skeptical. You, you demonstrated faith at a low level that when you showed up today, we were going to be here to greet you. Smile, handshake, lights, you know, coffee. For those of you with kids, you demonstrated faith that when you dropped your kids off, that you'd get them back <laughs> with all their limbs. They came in with still intact, you know, whatever number they had. They got them when they came out. And at first, some of you weren't so sure. We saw that on your face. But then you saw all the other people with great faith and our people and MKids. And it took a minute, and then you demonstrated faith. And now some of you have so much faith that you're asking, can I drop them off? I mean, trust you with them for all three services. Is that, is that a possibility? Great faith is great trust in who Jesus is. And if you're here and you're saying, well, you know, it was easy for that guy, Morgan, for the centurion. He, he saw, he had seen, the Bible says, the, the miracles Jesus had done up to this point. If he'd seen those things with his own eyes, if that's you and you're saying, well, it was, 
easy for him. Do you know what you're saying? You're saying that the eyewitnesses of Jesus had good enough reason to believe in him. Even in this case, someone who was culturally conditioned and personally predisposed to not believe. You're saying that, hey, all these things really were true. And that's why the Roman believed. Great faith is great trust in Jesus, first of all. But second, we should just pause here and ask, well, what prompted, what produced this great faith in his life? Where, where did this come from? What, what prompted this Roman to make this great statement? I'll put it like this. Here we go. Number two, great faith was formed through the centurion's impossible circumstance. It was like the cauldron. It was the, the fire that forged his, this great faith. And see, what brought this man to Jesus was something he could not possibly handle on his own. Look at this, verse six. He said, Lord, my servant lying paralyzed, suffering terribly. See, what caused him to transfer his trust to Jesus was a situation so significant it was beyond his reach to remedy. A situation so significant, it was beyond his reach to remedy. His great faith was a result of an impossible circumstance. Nine years ago, this past week, actually, uh, Carrie and I moved back here. Our family did. Uh, four, left with three, came back with four kids. Uh, from, from Nashville, Tennessee, we had been in this church previously as like the college pastor people here, but we took a ministry job there. But when this church, and you know this if you've been through our membership class, when this church went through yet another round of trauma, yet another pastor left, resigned, or was fired. We were asked to come back here as a lead pastor and work with those who had courageously stayed through all the ups and the downs. And when we got here, it was really challenging at first just to keep the lights on uh, and the doors open. The former board had to go through and fire, let go of a ton of great people, great staff. And the budget was cut as far as it would be if we could just pay the bills and like didn't run the heat in the winter. Didn't turn the lights on in the summer. I felt like, you know, Bob Cratchit with Pastor Brett. Here's your lump of coal. You know, Ebenezer Scrooge. And may I have another, sir? No, you know, may not. And then after we moved back, uh, it, it went from bad uh, to worse because we had, at the time, one church member, fantastic man family, who gave more than a third of the remaining budget. He had been so generous, but one day he called and let us know he was going to move on. And Now, I don't know if any of you have ever faced uh, uh, the, uh, down the barrel of a legitimately, here's the word, impossible circumstance. I know all of us have probably faced like really tough circumstances, hard circumstances, challenging circumstances. But when your budget, and here it comes, to keep the, the lights on, pay the mortgage, keep the remaining, you know, you know, you know mash together staff on payroll. When that, your budget is, at the time, 75000 a month, you've got no savings, and $25,000 walks out the door. You're 34 years old, you've got four kids, and you moved across country because God told me to. <laughs> Famous last words, right? You cannot find that amount of money, you know, laying around in the lobby or in the cracks of the sofa cushions and MKIDs. Listen, we looked. It's not there. You know, it, you can try, you know, finders keepers, I suppose. But, you know, I, I'll never forget the sick feeling in my stomach when I got that phone call because it went not just from bad to worse. It went from worse to impossible. The church, as far as I could see, we could see was over. I remember calling some old mentor friends of mine back in Nashville, a couple of these older guys on the phone. I remember telling them what happened. And then I remember there was absolute silence. 
Then these are people who have seen it all, kind of done it all. No advice, no encouragement. These were the next words I heard. Yeah, that sounds like a tough one. <laughs> other guy, we'll be praying for you. Yeah. And they mumbled some other non-encouraging stuff. And I think they were thinking, he's going to move back. I probably would have if it were not for well, my friend, one of our elders here, John Lloyd. John Lloyd to the rescue. And he called me, called Pastor Brett, a few other folks, and said, we're going to meet at the church. We are going to pray. I'm like, great, John. I'm going to pray. You know? <laughs> and we went into what's now called the family room, or maybe some of you are sitting right now, our overflow room. And it did not have, like it has now, nice screens. Uh, it did not have speakers. Nice speakers. The Bose speakers and nice new chairs and sconces on the walls. When I moved here, I didn't know what a sconce was. We put sconces in the room, but it had this old, badly stained carpet. It smelled like mildew because it always used to flood in that room. Now we've, uh, you know, cleaned it. It's all good now. Don't worry. And we gathered in that moldy, smelly room and we prayed. We cried out to our heavenly father, another version of what that centurion said. We said, Lord, your servant, this church is paralyzed at home. We are suffering terribly. We do not have the power. Let me tell you, to change anything, that situation was so big, big so be on any of us. And I had to get up in the same pulpit right here, this place on stage the next week, and act like nothing had happened. Preach like nothing was going on and thinking, I don't even know if we're going to be here next month. And I had to go and look at my kids and act like nothing was going on. I don't even know if we're going to be living here next month. But do you know what happened? Here's what happened. Out of the blue, this local business called us and said they wanted to rent out our other building where our offices are now, where our new student center is, where our teams are meeting now. And we had actually tried to sell that building because we were desperate for cash. We were committed to not having this facility be the center of our life and trust, but God being the center of our church and life and trust. And the, the building had been on the market with zero calls. And then we got one. I mean, no, it only takes one when God's involved. And to make a long story short, they agreed to rent out that building for guess what? How much? $25,000 a month. For five years, they replaced dollar for dollar what that other businessman had given. And in that whole thing, God did two things. First, he broke a false idol that this church had had for leaders it had for years with money. There had been so much trust placed in wealth, so much courting of the wealthy. It was all the bad stuff you've seen on TV. Maybe you've been involved within a church, but God broke all of that. We were DOA on the table, but God brought us back to life, broke the power of that old stuff, and produced in us great faith. And we now know Romans 8 like never before. If God is for us, we don't have a reason for it. We don't deserve it. But if he's for us, who can be against us? And let me tell you, I am convinced, to paraphrase Paul, that neither bad leadership, nor stained carpet, nor moldy rooms, nor vanishing givers that you have, situations you can't see your way out of, can keep us from the love of God. Why? Because great faith it is trust, great trust in the person of Jesus that grows as a result of facing down impossible circumstances. I don't know what your perhaps impossible situation is today. I don't know if you're suffering terribly. You've gotten a medical diagnosis. Your, your, your loved ones are suffering. Your marriage is suffering. Maybe you've got a child really gone off the rails, lost your job. You're suffering terribly. I don't know what it is, and I don't know what's going to happen don't know, but I do know what it can do in your life if you let it bring you to Jesus. Like what, it hap- like what happened with the centurion, it can produce great faith, great trust in someone who loves you, 
more than you could know, more than you could ever know. That's what great faith is. It's how great faith is formed. But we haven't looked at the most important part of all of this. And here it is, finally. Why the centurion's great faith mattered to Jesus. If you read the passage, you can see that great faith matters to Jesus. You can see that it's a big deal to him. Because after he, you know, commends the centurion and kind of maybe sort of, yeah, throws shade on his disciples... All of a sudden, he bursts out with this phrase. You heard it read in the passage. What he says next, it, it like seems to come out of nowhere. It seems almost so random, but he's using this whole situation to teach you and me something right now. Jesus says this out loud now to the crowd in front of everyone around him. He says, I tell you all, plural, all of you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're like, God, he got real judgy after the miracle. Like, what's, what's going on, Jesus? What's he, what's he mean? What's he doing? Oh, here's what he's doing. He isn't just showing you that great faith matters. He's showing you why great faith matters, and let me show you. What Jesus is talking about here is what marks his ministry everywhere. You say, what's that? Well, maybe you've heard the essence of Jesus' kingdom put like this. He says in places, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And maybe you've heard it put like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because they get the whole kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Or maybe you put it hurt like this again over and over. The one who wants to save his life will lose it, but the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. See, over and over and here again, he's talking about the one thing that holds his whole upside down kingdom together. The one thing that marks the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's talking about, here's the phrase, the great reversal. The great reversal. What's that? Come on, come on. You, you got it. The first will be last. Last will go first. He's saying the ones you would really expect to come to know him, the ones who who actually make it into his kingdom are not the ones that you would expect, but it's the opposite. And this whole study with the centurion is a case study in the great reversal because who was supposed to make it into Jesus' kingdom first? Come on. He calls them the sons of the kingdom. In those days, they were the Jewish people, those who had God's laws. They had the Torah and the temple and the prophets, the people who had it all together. They were the sons of the kingdom. And in our day, our day, that group, you could substitute this, it looks more or less, I think, like two groups of people, two groups of people today who think they have it all together. It's either, on one hand, the the squeaky clean, religious person, moral person. Maybe you grew up in church. You feel like, man, I've got it all together. I should get in because I've been really good. I haven't been as bad as that group or political party or person. Or on the other hand, the other group in our country tends to think they have it all together. It's actually the irreligious person. It's the secular, skeptical person who thinks they can be good without God. You know, they they follow their own path. You you chart your own course. You feel like, I'm so smart on my own. And you know what? I don't know if there's a God, but if there were a God, God ought to allow me into his kingdom because I've got a good heart. I really meant well, you know. See, we think either, either having great behavior... Or a great heart is what ought to get us in, but the great reversal is this. The one who thinks they're in is out. The ones who think they deserve it are actually undeserving. 
those who seem the farthest away. Jesus calls them those from the east and the west. He's referring to the centurion here, the Romans. Where were they from? Come on, the east and the west. But here is the foreigner. Here's the bad person. Here's the evil occupier getting in, getting it, getting faith, getting healing, blessing Jesus before the people who ought to have gotten it. The first are now last. The last are now first. See, the centurion's great faith matter to Jesus because the centurion's great faith is the seed of the gospel itself. The centurion carried around in his heart what the whole story is trying to teach you and show you is a nutshell of the gospel of Jesus. It's those who come to him acknowledging their utter dependence on him. Like those who come like the centurion came acknowledging their utter need for salvation from Jesus. Those are the ones who get it, but those who depend on their great behavior, who their parents or grandparents are, or what's more for, far common in our culture, they depend on their own great heart, own great motives to get in. Those are the ones who are left out. It's offensive. It was offensive to the disciples. It ought to be offensive today, but Jesus is showing you here is the one who he receives in his kingdom. He's not the one with great behavior or a great heart, but the one with great trust in who he is, who sees and believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God sent to save you the authority of the universe itself. You say, well, how? How can I see that today? Oh, it's by seeing. Here it is, the unseen one in the story. Well, who's not seen? Come on. It's the suffering servant. We see the disciples, don't we? We see the crowds, we see the centurion, we see Jesus, but we never see the suffering servant who in the end, he's, he's kind of hiding. He's just waiting to show us, if we'll look at him, a picture of who Jesus really is because Jesus is so much like and yet unlike the suffering servant. Like that servant, he served not just a wicked empire, but he came to serve a cruel and wicked race, humanity. He came and he, Jesus, served in secret. As a result, he suffered terribly. He wasn't, though, just paralyzed at home. He was crucified on a cross and put to death. But unlike the centurion servant who had someone to advocate for him, who had someone to call out for him, to plead on his behalf, Jesus had no one. There was no one who pleaded for Jesus, no one who called out for mercy for him like the centurion did. And so when Jesus cried out on his own behalf, father turned away. Why? The first was becoming last. So the last could come first. He didn't try to save his own life, but he lost it so he could save ours so that many from the east and the west, that's us, you and me, could come into his kingdom. Great faith simply begins with believing the gospel, grasping the great reversal. See, because it takes in a way, it takes great faith, doesn't it, to believe the gospel. Not great faith that Jesus came, not great faith that he died, but it takes great faith to believe that our good behavior, or maybe even our good heart is not enough, but great faith is knowing and believing that those who think they're going to be first will be last, but those who know they are last, like the servant who says, I'm not worthy even to have you come into my life, into my own home. Those who don't deserve the grace of God, they go first. And Jesus marveled at that. Because it revealed the gospel, the heart of God, out of the mouth of the person no one would think would get it. No one who thought he, no one would think he deserved it, and neither did he. But he came to Jesus still, asking for grace and mercy, and he got it. I hope we can do the same today.